in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. This morning, give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, and the grace to apply. I pray that you would strengthen my physical body, Lord, this morning, and anoint me to preach your word like you gave it to me. I pray that your people would be edified and that your name be glorified. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. The book of Joel is a short book, but there... There's something that is noteworthy in the book of Joel, and that is that even in judgment, uh, the prophet Joel depicts and describes for us the nature of God with great, uh, with great vividness. There's such a clarity to the nature of God, especially as it pertains to restoration. This is important because if there is a, if there is a strategy of our enemy that he has employed since the garden, is it not an attack against the nature of God? When he deceived Eve in the garden, did he not get her to question the purpose of God, the prevailing purpose of God in, in the garden? Uh, if she could only doubt the, the goodness of her God and her creator, he would be successful. And I think he goes about the same strategy with us. He tries to convince us that God either is distant from us or that he is withholding something good from us. Your adversary will convince you that what sin has to offer is greater than what God has in his inheritance. You're not talking to me yet, but it's the truth. The enemy will go to great lengths to convince you that God, your father, is either afar off, his promises are unattainable, or that he is perpetually angry with you. That is an attack against the character and the nature of God. And nobody better than Joel to describe for us the nature and the character of God, especially when he restores his people. Let me just say that there are over 70 verses in the scriptures, Old Testament and New, that talk about the goodness of God. You can't read the book of Psalms without hearing this phrase repeatedly. Not only the book of Psalms, but Old Testament and New Testament alike. It reiterates the goodness of God, reinforces the goodness of God. We say in church, God is good. We used to say it all the time. God is good all the time and all the time. God, somebody say God is good. Do you know that God is good? That must not be relegated to a Christian phrase. The goodness of God is, is exemplified all throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. He is good. Why is it then that you believe that he's kind of not? Is it not our enemy that wants us to doubt the goodness of his nature? As I was preparing uh, the sermon this morning I felt heavily impressed upon just to encourage you and to remind you of the goodness of God towards you. We need to be, how do I say, our minds need to be reformed in regards to our perception of God's nature. He is a good God. I said he is a good God. Psalms 119 says, for the Lord is good and he does good things and that's the truth. He's good and what he does is good. And every gift that he gives us is also what? Good. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Are you following me so far? There are two common, follow me, there are two common misconceptions in the church that are prevalent this morning. I got to lay a foundation before we get to the text. There are two common misconceptions in the modern church today. Please humor me for a moment. I believe there are two. Number one, it is that number one, that he is consistently angry. 
that God is consistently angry. And I'm talking about what believers believe. That God's nature, that he is a God who is consistently angry. Number two, that his promises are afar off. That what we find in the scriptures as it pertains to what he promises his people, that those things are afar off from us and almost unattainable. We say that we believe the promises of God, and yet we almost live in a way as if we'll never see them, as if we'll never walk in them or never experience them for ourselves. How many know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? How many believe his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? How many believe that God, if he said it, then he will surely perform his words? Shout hallelujah. Matthew Henry wrote the following. He said, I want you to see, and, and it's good. Matthew Henry said, see how, good, see how God is ready to relieve his people. See how ready God is to relieve his people. How he waits to be gracious to us. As soon as they humble themselves under his hand and pray and seek his face, he immediately meets them with his favors. As soon as we turn to him in repentance, he meets us with his favors, his blessings, because he is a good God. Please don't make me work hard today. My throat is sore. He's a good God. As soon as we turn to him in repentance, he meets us there and he pours out of his goodness. You must leave this service this morning with a, new, a renewed understanding. God is not perpetually angry, especially as it pertains to his people. He loves us with an unwavering, everlasting love. And he is waiting to pour out his goodness on you. You're walking around. We walk around living as if God is always angry with us and just withholding his goodness. You walk in the goodness of God every day. Whether you perceive it or not is another story. It is of his goodness that you're not consumed. If you're in the church this morning, it's because he was good to you today. Shout amen. So as we approach the text, I want us to do so understanding the following. As we begin to approach the text in verse 18, I want us to understand the following. Two things. Understand two things. Number one, we need to understand that God's promises are real answers to prayers of faith. They are real answers. Please hear me. They are not mythical. They are not unattainable. God's promises are very real answers to what it is you need every single day in your life. Do you believe that? Our faith has to become tangible. Our faith has to become tangible. By that I mean it has to be palpable to us. You ought to be able to walk it out. You ought to be able to apply what it is that God asks you to do and then see it in your family. You ought to be able to see it in your bank account. I'm going to hit you right where you understand, right where it matters most to you. You ought to see it in your health as well. You ought to see it in your mind, the peace that you have. You ought to walk. These are promises of God, and they're not afar off. They're real answers for us. You're tormented in your mind. God has a promise for that. He has an answer and a solution for that in his word. For he keeps him whose mind is stayed on him in perfect peace. You're tormented. He promises you perfect peace, and he tells you how to get it. You're struggling financially. He says, hey, bring all the tithe and the offering into the storehouse and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you won't have room enough to contain. He said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread. Anything you need is right here. Are you in the house? Somebody shout, God's promises are real answers. If you believe it, say hallelujah. Number two, understand that with God, I'm not talking about men. With us, it's different. With you, you never know if your yes is yes or your no is no. But with God, please hear me. What he says and what he does are not two different things. You're not understanding that. As it pertains to God's nature, as it pertains to the person of God, please hear me. 
What God says and what he does are not two different things. By that I mean when God says it, as soon as he says it, in his mind it's already done. It's hard for you to fathom that. As soon as God says a thing, it's as good as done. There is creative power in his word. God doesn't say a thing and hope that it comes to pass. He knows the end from the beginning. So with God saying and doing, please hear me, they're not different things. If he says it, it's as good as done. If we will hide this reality and approach the text that way, it's going to make much more sense to what Joel's saying. And you're going to see it in just a moment. When God speaks, it's done. He does not, he is not contained or confined to time and space like you and I are. Are you understanding what I'm telling you? He's the... He's the self-sufficient God. Before anything was, he was. But he stepped into time into eternity for our sake. Please hear me. That We are governed by time. God is not. So when he says a thing, it's already done. He sees the end from the beginning. That's why thank God for his grace and mercy. The Lord saved you. Please hear me. He saved you. And he saw the end result from the beginning. Thank God you're going to finish this race because he who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus. Aren't you glad that he sees it all the way through? Somebody shout, if he says it, he'll do it. All right, now let's look at verse 18 now with that understanding. Verse 18 in your Bible, look at the text. Help me read now like you're alive. Ready? Read. Mm -hmm. One more time. Ready? Read. Then the Lord became and now the word pity, put it up there, is the word kamal. I'm not pronouncing that like a true Jew, Jew would, but it's Kamal, and it means to spare. Take note of this. The word pity means to spare, to have compassion on, but the primary idea to the Jew is the idea of softness, softness, the softness of God or the compassion of God. Verse 18 says, the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had compassion on his people. He spared his people. He is soft with his people. Praise God for that. He had compassion. That tells us, put it up there, that the coming restoration that we're going to see is rooted in compassion. You see, you, you don't shout over that, but you should. It's rooted in the compassion of God. This is part of his nature. I want you to see it here. Verse 18 says, watch what Joel says. The Lord had pity on the land and on his people. He had compassion on his people. There was a softness there in his nature towards his people. And when God restores us, it will be rooted in compassion. Why is this important? Because it is preceded, put it up there, this restoration is preceded by our repentance. Please hear me, not tied to our performance. You're not understanding what Joel's saying here. This restoration was preceded by, I feel the Holy Ghost. This restoration is preceded by our repentance, not by our performance. It is the Lord saw the land and he had pity. He had pity because his people turned back to him. It's not tied to my performance. No, it was preceded by my repentance. And thank God that it's not tied to our performance. He looks upon us and has compassion. 
This is good news for the least among us. This is good news for those of us that realize I have nothing in me that, 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 that warrants this kind of goodness and restoration. The Lord, I feel his presence. The Lord looked upon me and he had compassion and pity on my soul. He was moved to compassion and that is why he will restore. Why? Because he's compassionate. This restoration is rooted in the compassion of God. It's preceded by our repentance, never tied to our performance. Secondly, it is promised on the premise of mercy, not merit. This restoration is, please hear me, it is promised on the premise of mercy, never merit. Thank God that we can't earn it. We can't boast about it. It's rooted in compassion. A characteristic that is pure only in God. The compassion that you may have in your heart is tainted. You're not hearing me. There's something innately in us that even when we're compassionate towards others, there's always some kind of ulterior motive. As much as you say, no, I'm good just because I'm good to people, no. There's something in you that likes to be thanked. Something in you that craves recognition. But compassion as it pertains to God is pure. He does so, please hear me, he does so not because we merit that thing. All we do is say, Lord, we, we repent and we turn back to you now. In judgment, Lord, we turn our face back to you. It's preceded by repentance. It's promised on the premise of mercy, never merit. Lastly, this restoration is performed, as I told you last week, in defense of the honor of his own great name. Why is God going to restore us? Because his name is attached to you. Woo, you ought to get happy right now. You carry the family name. That's why God is invested. I wish you'd hear me. God is invested in your restoration because you bear his name. Too many people know that you profess him as your father and he will not allow you to remain in the shame of your rebellion. God will restore you not only privately but publicly for all to see and know that in spite, come on, in spite of our rebellion, he is a good and merciful father. Hallelujah. Do you not know that Muslims all over the world are killing themselves in hopes that they might have virgins waiting for them in a paradise that does not exist? They lay down their life for a demonic God and yet our, I feel the presence of God. And yet our Savior and Messiah does not ask that we sacrifice, that we take our own life. He laid down his life for us. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, what a reality. He came for us to save us, to die for us. What a gospel, what a merciful savior, what a good father. He had pity, verse 18, he had pity on his people. He had compassion on his people. Thank God that in compassion, verse 18 and 19, in compassion, he will restore us. Now look at verse 20 now. We see another promise here in verse 20 of the text. We're going to move quickly. Help me read it now. Oh, the top's up there. Uh, let's try this one. Ready? Read. And I will. Time out, 8 o'clock. Did you have your Wheaties today? Come on, read it like you had your cereal. Ready? Read. I will. Yes. Uh-huh. For he has done. 
Joel's talking about the army of locusts that God sent to his people. Uh-oh, we, we don't want to hear about that. God did in his sovereignty allow an army of locusts to devour the land. But now he says, watch this, I will drive away, number one, in compassion. Take note of this. This is what God is going to do. In compassion, number one, he will drive away the source of our affliction. In compassion, he will drive away the source of our affliction. The army of locusts that invaded them from the north. The army, by the way, which they could not stop. And there is a biblical precedent for us here, even in New Testament theology. There is indeed a thorn that God will send to us. Paul had a thorn that buffeted him. The scripture says that it was a messenger of Satan that kept him lowly and dependent upon the grace of God. Three times he beseeched the Lord to remove it, and the Lord says, I'm not going to take it. Because my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is perfected in your weakness. I know this is hard for us to comprehend, but God at times will allow a season of affliction to bring us to a place, please hear me, of repentance so that he might restore us. And when God, I feel his presence, when God gets ready to restore us, he gives us a promise. He says, I will now drive away the source of your affliction. An army that you could not stop from devouring the land. You want to talk about helplessness. Judah, come on. They could not stop the army from doing its destruction. It was sent and ordained by God. But in verse 20, the Lord says, now I will drive away the northerner. He's talking about the army of locusts that devour their land. He said, what you couldn't stop before, that helplessness, that affliction, I'm about to drive it away. In compassion, I will remove the one that afflicts you. Somebody shout hallelujah. He will drive away the source of our affliction. So what is the appropriate response? Look at verse 21. Here's our response to this verse. Ready? Fear not, O Lamb. Be glad and... Verse 21. Be glad and... Somebody shall rejoice. Rejoice because the Lord has what? For the Lord... Now you were looking at me strange earlier when I said with God, saying and doing are not two different things. The restoration, watch what verse 21 says, it's on purpose. Fear not, O land, pay attention. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do. For the Lord will do. Will do. It doesn't say will do, it says for the Lord. Thank you, Elder Brown. That's past tense. You don't need to be an English scholar. That's past tense. In the mind of God, it's done. The restoration that he promised, it was done. Rejoice now. Don't wait until you see it. Rejoice right now because it's coming. And in the mind of God, it's already done. Oh, we're not fulfilling our biblical responsibility. It's a command. It says, hey, fear not, O land. Praise God and rejoice. Are you rejoicing over the coming restoration? The truth that he will drive away what afflicted you ought to cause you to be glad and rejoice. Well, I'm rejoicing quietly in my heart. You lie. There is a time to rejoice. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done. Somebody shout has done. Has done great things. Secondly, in compassion, number two, he will bless the land that was barren. Verse 22 and 23, let's read it. Ready? Give me the text, verse 22 and 23, ready? Read, fear not, 
For the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and vine give their full yield. 23, be glad. There it is again. Read it again. Be, one more time, be, O children of Zion, and for the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. That tells us that in compassion, put it back up there, he will bless the land that was barren. Can I tell you, your barren season is over. Hallelujah. I wish somebody would receive the word of the Lord. Your barren season is over. You are about to see fruitfulness. You ought to rejoice as if it's already done. You ought to say, Lord, I receive that word for my family, for my business. I receive that. Our barren land, our season of barrenness is over. Praise God. Here's what prosperity preachers and teachers don't tell their people. There will be seasons of barrenness. No one said amen to that. I didn't expect your amen. There will be seasons of barrenness in the life of a believer. There will be times that you're going to go through a dry season. Not because he has departed you, but because he's preparing you. I'm going to say that again. Not because he's departed from you, but because he is preparing you. I am convinced that we don't appreciate the blessing of God, the goodness of God, until we walk through that barren land. All the fruit, all the barrenness in your life, that season of barrenness is over. That tree that hasn't borne its fruit, it's about to bear its fruit again. I wish somebody would rejoice. God's about to bless your land that was barren. Come on, everything that wasn't producing fruit, it's about to give fruit. You're going to see it by faith. Somebody shout hallelujah. God will bless the barren land. Some of you don't understand what that means, so I want you to look at chapter 1 in your Bible. We're almost done. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 10 and 17, because you don't have something to compare it with. So some of you are like, oh, yes, I do. I can talk to you about how barren my life has been. But I want you to see in Joel chapter 1, look at verse 10 and look at verse 17. Just for reference, watch. This is why they were glad, and this is why they rejoiced. Verse 10 says, the fields are what? They're destroyed. The fields are wasted. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Are you here? Because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. How can we summarize verse 10? Lack. How do we summarize verse 10? Barrenness. The oil dries up. I wonder if you've experienced when everything that was fruitful before just dries up. Oh, you've never been there. When everything you were depending on just dries up and isn't a resource anymore. You see, God has a way of cutting those things off. But here's a promise of restoration. The land that was barren will again be fruitful. Now look at verse 17. Verse 10 says, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, the grain is destroyed, the wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Look at verse 17. The seed shrivels. Are you here? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are what? They're desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. Another version says the barns are broken down. Think of that. There's nowhere even to keep the blessing of God. It's dried up. The seed even in the ground is rotten. Now you know why they rejoice at the coming restoration. In comparison to what we've endured, the barrenness of this season, we can be glad and rejoice. Ready? Because here comes the promises of God. He says that there will be an abundance now. What was lacking before, you'll have an abundance in this season of restoration. Praise God for that promise. 
That tells us that in compassion, number three, I want you to see it. In compassion, he will bring divine restitution. And not only divine restitution, but satisfaction. Look at verse 25 and verse 26. Ready? He says, I will restore to you. Give me verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts, are you here? Have eaten the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. He will bring divine restitution. Why? Because he's compassionate. Not only restitution but satisfaction. Now the word satisfied that we see in the text here twice is the word savah in Hebrew and watch what it means. It means to be filled and not only to be filled but to be fulfilled. I like that. To be filled and to be fulfilled. It means to have desires satisfied. Please hear me now. And it means to have an excess. Woo! I'll get happy all by myself. I don't need y'all to say amen. I'll receive it for myself. It means to be fulfilled and to be full. To be satisfied. To have desires satisfied. And if that isn't enough, you ought to shout over this. To have an excess. Don't get mad at me. It's what the Hebrew word means. You will eat and have an excess. That's what the word means in Hebrew. You will eat and savah. You will be fulfilled. Your desires will be met. You're going to have an abundance. It's, you're like, this is hard for me to believe because I've never lived that. It's incredible. Now, a side note here, there's another word, there's another term there, the word for eat. One of the understandings for the Hebrew word for eat also is to live. You will live and be satisfied. You see, because uh, I, I, somebody needs to hear this right now. Just because you're breathing doesn't mean you're living. I'll say that again. Just because you're breathing doesn't mean you're living. Jesus said, I have come that they might have watch. I am come. It's the, re it's, the, it's the reason why I changed the name years ago. John 10, I am come that they might have life. In the face of restoration, we're tempted to say, can these dry bones live again? And God says, I will restore. You will live. And not only will you finally live, you will be satisfied. Yeah, that's a good time to clap. You will be satisfied. Somebody shout live. Come on, somebody shout live and be satisfied. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, you're about to live again. You're about, I feel the Holy Ghost. You're about to, I'm trying not to get excited. You're about to live again. You're about to live again. You're about to live again. Divine restitution and divine satisfaction. You're about to live again. I know you've been breathing. I know you've been existing, but you're about to live your life again. Can these dry bones live? Yes, they will. You're about to live again. Hallelujah. If that wasn't enough, I close with the fourth promise. Ready? You will have an abundance of good things. Look at verse 19. Now let's backtrack in 24 and then we'll close. Junior, come. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you what? Grain, wine, and oil. And again, it says you will be what? You will be what? And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. 
verse 24, the threshing floors, verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats not only will have oil, somebody say excess. You're not hearing me. It doesn't say that there would only be grain. It says your floors are going to be full of grain. It doesn't only say you will have oil. It says the vats will overflow with oil. That's excess. That's what you call more than enough. Because how many know when God blesses and when he restores, he does exceedingly abundantly above and beyond everything we could ask, hope, or think, or even imagine. God says, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied. I want you to see in your mind's eye, in your spirit, man, the floors are full of wheat. I want you to see it in your spirit today. I sense the, the word of the Lord is finding good ground this morning. And those that came with an ear to hear, you're hearing the word of the Lord. I want you to see the, the floors full of wheat. I want you to see the vats overflowing with oil. This is not going to be a season of just enough. It definitely will not be a season of not enough. Why rejoice and be glad? Because those who have turned back to the Lord will be restored of his mercy, not merit. Preceded by repentance, not performance. Rooted in his compassionate nature, not your worthiness. Full of wheat. Vats are full of oil came to tell you this morning, please hear me, put the application that in restoration, what God does is he glorifies his own goodness. He glorifies his goodness. He is compassionate towards his people and he is merciful to the penitent. And not only that, but he is bountiful when he blesses. Compassionate in restoration, merciful to the penitent. Not only that, but he is bountiful when he blesses. Father, we thank you for your word. 